I invite you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7, we'll be looking at verses 9 through 17 this morning. However, as I originally had intended to plan, we were going to cover this whole passage. Um, I realized realized rather later in the week that we would only cover the first half. So we'll look at verses 9 through 12 in depth. We'll read the whole passage, however, and then we'll look at verses 13 through 17 next week. So we'll spend two parts here on this sermon, The Church Triumphant. I spend uh, time each week wrestling over the purpose of the passage and, and I'm, you know, that I'm about to preach because I want to be faithful to present that purpose uh, to you in a way that you can understand and then apply immediately. I, I think I, I used to go to church thinking that um, sort of my goal was to, to get a lot of notes down and to take it back and to reflect upon those notes and think about what, what it means and even study and, and, and that's good, and you know, I think it's very helpful to do that. I encourage you to meditate upon this passage further, uh, but I also want there to be some e- immediate impact, right? As you're sitting under the preaching of the word, that the Spirit would, would call out to you and would do a, a work on your hearts. And so I, I take some time to wrestle with that. I spend time oftentimes not really understanding until later in the week what, what that purpose will be or what the main idea is going to be. But as I began to think about how to do that for this passage, I was aware just how weak my efforts would be, no matter what I came up with. This is a Mount Everest theme, and I'm basically maybe capable of bringing you to the, the base camp. You're going to have to do the exploring. You're going to have to do extended study on your own. I encourage you to do that. My goal is simply to place a map of helpful destinations and guideposts that you'll want to consider further as you meditate upon this text. Things to think about, passages to consider. This doesn't mean that this passage is esoteric and abstract, that it's going to be really hard to comprehend. It's not. This text is meant to prepare us for our greatest trials in life. Uh, Monday night, I watched the Kara Tippett's story on Netflix. I saw it was recently added um, to to their list of documentaries you could watch, and it's called The Long Goodbye. And some of you have heard that name, Kara Tippett's. We prayed for her when I was an assistant pastor at Sierra View. Um, we prayed for her. She was the wife of a PCA church planter in Colorado. And shortly after beginning a mommy blog, she was diagnosed with stage four breast cancer. Then she went on to continue writing and giving video updates, and she won a large following for how she was enduring through her suffering. And in the last years, she fought to display this honest yet faithful picture of Christian suffering, not only for the church, but even for the world. And the documentary covers her last years, concluding with her death and funeral on March 22nd, 2015. And even as I was watching, I was still wrestling with with this passage and thinking through this. I mean, it was early in the week, but I was still, I was, I had this passage on mind. 
And I thought, what would I have said to her in her situation? Or what does this passage have to say to her in her last days? How can it encourage her family and friends as they mourn her death, even today? Well, I think this passage is especially suited for those in mourning. It's a passage that provides hope. It gives us strength to persevere in the face of life's greatest trials. Here we are told of the blessings that await those who enter into their heavenly reward. So Douglas Kelly says this, This passage, as well as any in the word of God, puts our minds on heaven, where many of our loved ones already are and where all who are saved will soon be. And so it's a a joyful passage. It's a passage of celebration that we should already begin anticipating even now. John is providing a word of encouragement to the first century church as they prepare to endure suffering. He repeatedly points them to God who is seated on his throne and the Lamb who redeemed us by his death and resurrection. And so last week we looked at the, we noted the 144,000 described in the first half of this chapter as the church militant. They depict the church militant. Before his servants enter into tribulations of all kinds, God seals them with the promise of his ultimate protection. The church triumphant now in heaven is simply the antithesis of the church militant on earth. On earth, we engage in spiritual warfare and tribulation, We stand in battle array. Our warfare is primarily spiritual. But it will oftentimes involve physical and emotional components, just as it did for Kara Tippetts. And anything related to living in a fallen world that is out of accord with God's intended purposes in creation is related to the church militant. And so it's the opposite for the church triumphant, right? In heaven, we rest from war. We enjoy the celebration of the Lamb's victory. We are finally free from all spiritual, physical, and emotional conflict. And so this passage shows us how the church triumphant for all eternity will celebrate the victory of the Lamb who saved us. So let's pray that the Lord would convict us and comfort us from this passage. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that we do have this vision, this glorious display for us to imagine, for us to give our thoughts and our affections to so that you might begin to work in us and to to give us the joy and hope of our salvation. That as we depart here, we would be changed, we would be challenged, and we would be exhorted to face any trial, any tribulation that might be in store for us. Lord, open our eyes this morning. Give us ears to hear. Help us to respond in obedience that you might be glorified in all things. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen. Read with me Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 17. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, 
from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Amen. This is God's holy word. So the first section I want to look at, we're going to look at that first paragraph there, verses 9 through 12, and we're going to break that down into two sections. First, verses 9 and 10, the salvation of the church triumphant. The salvation of the church triumphant. After hearing of the 144,000, John looked and he saw this great multitude made up of all the redeemed from past, present, and future, from all tribes and peoples and languages, celebrating their salvation. Picture that. Imagine that. Imagine the crowd he saw, including some of us, hopefully including most of us. Imagine. That's, that's what he's looking out and seeing. He's seen the church in glory from past, present, and future, those who would come after him. He's seen this display from all tribes and peoples and languages celebrating their salvation. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. If this is the same group as the first part of the passage, as I argued last week, then why would John suggest that no one could number them? Right? He's already heard the number as 144,000. Why wouldn't he simply associate the number or that number with this crowd that he now sees? Well, in the first half, John heard about the redeemed community from God's perspective. Right? He was hearing about the 144,000, this perfect, symbolic, and stylized number of the whole church, the whole covenant community. And, and, and if God knows the number of the hairs on each head, then he can accomplish the easier task, of course, of counting the number of heads, right? But from John's perspective, from our view, the crowd of saints are innumerable, Joel Beakey says, they are innumerable as far as you and I are concerned, but God knows every one of them. Again, this does not mean that the number is literal. Go back last week and listen. I don't have time to develop all of that argument again, but if, 
If you need to know the many reasons why I interpret the 144,000 figuratively, then that message is available online for you. But just because the number is, is given uh, in a stylized and symbolic manner uh, does not mean the number is unknown to God. The precise number is, not, is, is unknown to him. And of course, God knows that number. God knows everyone who belongs to him. But God alone knows that number. John doesn't. You and I don't. The church triumphant includes representatives from all people groups. God's name will be considered great from the east to the west, as Malachi 1.11 said. People from all nations will join Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in heaven. They were in the crowd that he saw. The 24 elders had already anticipated this praise. They gave that same praise in chapter 5, verse 12. Worthy is, the, or worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. It's the same kind of statement that, that uh, we see at, at the end of verse 12. Uh, but this universal church is anticipated in chapter 5, verse 9. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. So he's already heard this same language, and now he's actually seen it. Right? He's just, he's, it's a, a picture before him. The church is now seen to join all the hosts of heaven in their praise to God and to the Lamb. And since worship will be multi-ethnic, and multicultural in heaven, it is right for us to strive for the same on earth. I'm not suggesting affirmative action or reparations to ease racial tension. I do not believe that solves the problem. I think it only creates more animosity. But as believers who have been brought together as one people, while still retaining much of our cultural distinctiveness... We should have no inhibitions about worshiping alongside representatives of any and every ethnicity on earth. We should be delighted to worship with anyone and everyone who God brings through the doors of our church. And although language is an inevitable barrier to worship now, we can't accommodate every possible tongue, even in our own city, in a worship service. It creates a a barrier to our worship. Now, we ought to long for the day when that won't be the case. The day when we'll be in heaven as one people with one voice, one language, worshiping God. And so we can appreciate our global family and anticipate union with them in eternity. All of these saints are clothed in in long robes, commonly associated with festivals. Their, Their robes are white, signifying their purity and victory through the blood of the Lamb. They are counted among the righteous because they are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And although the martyrs back in chapter 6, verse 11, were also de- that were depicted in the sixth seal, they were given white robes. This doesn't mean that this great multitude is only made up of martyrs. It, it, it would imply that the martyrs were a part of this great multitude. 
but it doesn't suggest that the great multitude is made up of only martyrs, as, as some scholars have suggested. Right? We, we see in chapter 4, verse 4, the 24 elders were also clothed in white. And at the end of the book, all of the redeemed are clothed in robes that they have washed. Chapter 22, verse 14. So this is a picture of all the redeemed worshiping God together in perfect harmony. They've been given palm branches, it says. The palm branches in their hands, of course, you immediately think of Palm Sunday. Right? When Jesus entered into Jerusalem riding upon a donkey and received the treatment of a triumphant king. But even before that day, palm branches were waved during the festival of tabernacles. Leviticus 23, verse 40. This was meant to remind parents during this festival and to teach children to celebrate God's protection of Israel in the wilderness after their exodus out of Egypt. It's a, it, it was a festival that they celebrated as a reminder of their time in the wilderness when they lived in tents, when they, lived in, when, when they were in tabernacles, as it were. The Festival of Tabernacles, they, they went back and, and lived in tents and they, they taught their children about that experience and they reminded them of how God preserved and protected them as a people. So God had rescued this wilderness generation out of Egypt. He had brought them out of slavery in Egypt, but they were far from being free from trials after that, right? All throughout their wilderness journey, they're the epitome of suffering. Unfortunately, they repeatedly grumbled and complained about it. But despite their rebellious attitude, God continued to provide for them, and he protected them so that their children might enter into the promised land. They were, they were judged for their rebellious attitude, and so that that entire generation that was rescued out of Egypt died there in the wilderness. But their children continued on. And, and entered into the promised land. So John hears this great multitude saying, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. In chapter 19, verse 1, he'll see, hear something similar. Again, this great multitude shouting, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Both there and here, John alludes to the song of Moses. Not sure what that is. John alludes to the song of Moses, which the Israelites sang to the Lord after safely crossing the Red Sea. So this language here, it's, it, it's well, just listen. From Exodus 15, 2, it says, The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. As part of the song they sang after they safely crossed over the Red Sea, and you hear them now singing, salvation belongs to our God in heaven. So why does this passage allude to the Exodus story? Well, in John's vision, again, the whole redeemed church is celebrating God's preservation of them through the wilderness of suffering and tribulation. We'll see this again in chapter 12, verse 6, where it speaks of the woman, the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is nourished for 1,260 days. Again in verse 14, but the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness 
to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. As we'll see when we get there, I believe that that woman is a picture of the church fleeing into the wilderness where God can protect them, where God can protect his people. And so it's a wilderness of suffering and tribulation, but God has made a way of escape. Right? Just as God made a way of escape from Egypt for all Israelites, he provides the means for all his people to make their own exodus out of a fallen world. Just as God sent Moses to lead the covenant community out of their bondage in Egypt, he has sent to us his son, Jesus Christ, to lead his people out of their bondage to sin. And so as we plod our way in the wilderness of the fallen world, we have the assurance that our own salvation belongs to God who is seated on his throne and to the lamb who was slain in our place. God has made a way for us to be reconciled to him through his son and to celebrate the victory that he has won for all eternity. And so upon seeing this great multitude and hearing their cry, John sees the heavenly host join in worshiping the God of the church triumphant. That's the second point, the God of the church triumphant, verses 11 and 12. And this will be a much briefer point, but the hosts of heaven, overwhelmed with the sight of the multitude, they fall on their faces, offering the fullness of praise and adoration. Look with me. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. So they fall on their faces and they offer the fullness of praise and adoration. And I say fullness there because of the number of attributes you read there. There's seven They declare seven attributes of God. And of course, more attributes could have been listed. But seven represents the completeness, as we've already seen several times in Revelation, the fullness of their praise. In addition to that, in in the original Greek, the, the definite article precedes each attribute so that it literally reads, amen, the blessing and the glory and the wisdom and the thanksgiving and the honor and the power, and the might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. So this is no ordinary blessing, but it's the blessing. It's the blessing above all blessings. So William Hendrickson says, it it indicates that in the fullest, deepest sense, these excellencies pertain to God and to him alone. This same praise was given, as I pointed out in chapter 5, verse 12, by the myriad of angels in chapter 5, again, 5, verse 12. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. There, it's directed towards the lamb who was worthy to take the scroll from him who is seated on the throne. The order is, is slightly different and wealth is replaced with thanksgiving, but the point is clear. Right? Both the one who is seated on the throne and the lamb are worthy to receive the fullness of praise from all creation. You think about the popular stories of dying 
and entering into heaven only to be revived and to return to earth. And this popular stories you can find at Barnes and Noble depicting these experiences. Rarely, if ever, do they paint a picture like this. They oftentimes focus on reuniting with loved ones, and that's, and that's valid. But first and foremost, heaven is about worship. Right? If we do not care about worshiping Jesus Christ now, if all we can think about heaven is reuniting with loved ones or with enjoying you know, greater physical blessings or being free from pain or, or, or any of those sorts of things, and we, we don't even have a thought about Jesus Christ, then we need to be careful that we haven't become just like Israel. That we haven't turned away from God to idols. Why would we care about spending eternity worshiping in heaven if we don't care at all about it now? Paul could only say, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain, because his highest desire was to be with Christ. And so like the heavenly host, we ought to offer God the fullness of praise because the victory he has accomplished for us will be celebrated forever and ever. Again, the church triumphant for all eternity will celebrate the victory of the lamb who saved us. And we'll take up the rest of this passage next week. And in Sunday school, I plan on on discussing the eschatological topic. The study eschatology is just a study of last days. So we're going to take up the topic of the already and the not yet. Because I think it connects this passage and what we'll talk about next week also with our present suffering, our present experience of salvation. We live in this tension of the already and the not yet. We are simultaneously just and sinner. This tension is part of our suffering in this life. We have been clothed in the perfect righteousness of Christ. We've been given the indwelling spirit, yet in our flesh, sin remains ever present. We are a new creation in Christ, but we continue to wrestle with our old man. And as Christians, we must walk by faith in this tension, knowing that God is at work. His sanctifying grace is transforming and renewing us and preparing us for Christ's return when his tension or when this tension is fully and finally resolved. When we will enter into glory along with a great multitude praising the God who saved us. And so Isaiah contains much prophecy that relates to our eternal blessings. And they're given in in contrast to the experience of the saints in wilderness, in the wilderness. So listen to this, Isaiah chapter 35, verses one through four. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. 
The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. With that vision in mind, then, he says this, strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. So notice the language there of wilderness suffering being turned into joy. In other words, in heaven, everything that contributes to your suffering now will be used by God to magnify your enjoyment of his glory and his blessings for all eternity. And so in light of that, be strong and take courage. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for this passage and this vision this glorious reminder of the hope that we have in Christ. The hope that we have of belonging to the church triumphant. That we will be ushered into that great crowd and stand before the throne and worship. And we will be forever free from the suffering that we endure now. And in fact, we'll look back upon that suffering with joy, knowing that it only magnified our experience for all eternity. Lord, help us. Help us to keep that hope before our eyes. Lord, you know our situation, you know our circumstances, you know the, the suffering of those in this room, you know the, the suffering that's going on within our families, our friends. Lord, help us to provide this same picture of hope for them, to point them to the hope of heaven through the blood of Christ. Lord, let us remember recognize that it is because of the lamb who was slain, our savior on the cross, whose blood gave us access. Jesus paid it all. And let us live now these days, the rest of these days that we have in, on this earth as the church militant, ready and enabled and empowered to face whatever trials you lay before us. It's in Christ's name we ask it. Amen. Well, I invite you to stand. Our hymn of response is Jesus paid it all. Watch and pray.
as we come, preparation, as we prepare to come before the Lord's table to partake of the Lord's Supper, we recognize that we come united to Christ and to one another. We come as believers, united by our faith. And so we want to recite this as believers together. So if you're a Christian with us, I encourage you to join us in reciting the Apostles' Creed. Christian, what do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. 
Well, so we come as believers, we confess our faith in Christ. We also come as repentant believers, as we actually considered in, in Sunday school this morning, this repentance is a gift from God, and it's an ongoing gift. It's something we continue to need to do. And so we're reminded of that every week as we take some time here to confess our sin and to ask the Lord to give us that assurance of pardon. So as you take some time now quietly to confess your sin, listen to Romans 7, 18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. So let us confess our sins to the Lord. Hear this assurance of pardon for those who truly repent and place their faith in Christ alone. From Mark 10, 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So we have this privilege now of coming to partake of the, this meal with the Lord. It is an important element of worship. It's a part of our coming before him reverently and joyfully celebrating the accomplishing of our redemption by the Lamb of God. This is a picture of his love for us, his body given for us, his blood shed for us. And so we come to celebrate that victory. We come to receive strength from him as we partake. And we are reminded of his death and suffering and we're reminded of the grace that he gives us in our own suffering so that we too can endure because of his shed blood. We can endure because of the spirit he has given us, right? the spirit of adoption so that we cry out as, as sons to a father, Abba, Father. This is all a picture of our union with Christ and he has graciously invited you to this table if you have placed your faith in him. If you, have, if you are continuing to walk in repentance and if you're united, united to him and to his followers in the body of Christ. And so that doesn't mean that you need to belong to this particular church. And we do have membership here and we believe membership is a picture of, of what, is, what God calls us to as the body of Christ. We could talk about that some other time, but this is a this membership uh, for the table is is membership in in the broader body of Christ. Right, this is the Lord's table. He is the one inviting you to come, and so if you belong to Him, then we invite you to come and celebrate this. 
But there is a warning, right, that Paul gives. And he says, you can take this in an unworthy manner. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. And he says this, let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Part of that examination is why we offer the time to confess our sins and to repent. That's a time to examine ourselves, to make sure that we're in the right mindset, that we're coming humbly before him. We're not coming confidently in our own righteousness here. We're coming because we need his righteousness, because we need his grace once again to sustain us. And so let a person examine himself and then so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. So instead of the the table being a blessing, for those who partake in an unworthy manner, it becomes judgment. And so we do encourage you to take this seriously and then to come mindful of what Christ has done. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity once again to partake of the body of Christ and the blood of Christ shed for us. We thank you that we have this visible reminder of what Christ has done. And we do come in humble reliance upon him. And we ask that that you would bless these elements before us. Take this bread and this cup and cause us to be edified as we partake by your spirit, and as we do so in faith. And may you be glorified as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, elders, if you're available, I invite you to come help in the distribution of the elements. As a reminder, the cups that are purple on the outside are filled with wine. The cups in the middle are clear and they're filled with juice. And then on your left, there's some gluten-free wafers in the middle of the tray. You'll come and take a piece of bread and take a cup, and then when everyone's been served, we'll partake together. So come whenever you're ready.
On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he took the cup. And after giving thanks, as has been done in his name, he gave it to his disciples, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for many for the remission of sins. Drink from it, all of you. <clears throat> 